Hi, you guys, and welcome to Speak the Movement, a podcast where we connect with yoga teachers, practitioners, and business owners for more perspective and insight. My name is Libby, and this week we're here with yoga teacher and doula, Brett Hagenis. So, hey, Brett. Hi, thank you for having me on. I'm so excited to be here and uh, chat with you. Yeah, I'm totally pumped. Um, I wanted to start off by asking you something that I saw on your website that I really loved. Um, And it's a quote that says, yoga is a science of personal and social change. And I saw that along with a tab with multiple anti-racism resources for people to reference on your website where you advertise your practice. Um, So can you tell me about that and how you feel like this concept plays into the practice of yoga? Yes, starting off big. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, so that quote is from a woman named Susanna Barkataki, who is a South Asian yoga teacher and um, educator. And I really love her work. So I um, highly recommend checking her out. I've felt for a long time that yoga is very much interwoven with social justice and advocacy and activism in many different forms. And with this massive um, sort of collective movement that we've had in the past few months with the Black Lives Matter movement and calling for um, defunding the police and sort of social justice initiatives in policy and law, I felt like I could do a little bit more. Um, I'm a white woman and I'm in no way leading this conversation, but I did feel like it was my responsibility to A, let potential clients know who I am, what I stand for, um, what I do not tolerate, and B, give, you know, sort of uh, direct attention towards anti-racism educators in both the field of prenatal work and birth work and yoga. So I created that list on my website really just to direct attention towards all of these amazing educators who are doing the work and who I believe deserve recognition. That's just incredible and I I also, as a white woman, especially in the wellness industry, this isn't necessarily my time to shine. You know, I want to be able to bring light to the people that whose voices we need to hear right now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that a lot of us in the wellness industry, and especially in Austin, where we've seen lots of protests and changing studio culture, um, and just so many things that it's so important for us to have the perspective of how these issues affect us in the wellness space. And especially now that it's election season, um, when I see yoga teachers speaking their truth and not being shy to say, this is what I believe in and this is what's important, um, it really just makes my heart happy to see that done unapologetically and also with so much attention to how do I think about my demographic in the best way that I can serve people um, by listening and learning and also sharing what I can share. And you know, there's this counter argument that often gets pushed back, um, which really is just spiritual bypassing. And people will say, oh, well, you know, it's all love and light, or oh, we're all one, or oh, that's not very yogic of you. And I mean, if you really want to get down to it, where do you think the warrior poses came from? You Mm -hmm. know? And like, the ancient yogis, you read the Bhagavad Gita and it opens up on a battlefield. So this fight for justice really is the heart of yoga, in my opinion. Wow. Where do the warrior poses come from, man? I love, I love that so much. And 
yeah, we've talked a lot about spiritual bypassing in, in recent months and I really, I really appreciate what you're doing and I love to see it. Um, but starting off on your yoga journey, um, I kind of know how you started your journey as a teacher, but when did you first discover yoga? How old were you? What was the state of life that you were in? How did you come across it? What was the experience like to you? I first discovered yoga when I was maybe 10 years old. Um, a family member of mine took me to a yoga class at like a local studio um, in the neighborhood we lived in. And I, at that point in my life, was a dancer and a 10-year-old. And so I loved to move and make noise. And being in what now I know was a Hatha yoga class and holding a pose for a really long time and not feeling like I was sweating or moving energy out I was like eh, I'm uninterested um and so I kind of moved away from it and you know continued my life and when I was 18 I moved to Austin and a friend of mine was like hey there's a yoga studio here that offers donation-based classes at 10 30 p.m at night and it's great for uh college students and so that's how I picked it back up and ultimately fell in love with it Wow, that's incredible. I, I had a similar experience where I was exposed to it as a child, um, but I didn't quite get it until I needed it in my life, um, if you know what I mean. Um, yeah. But I saw in your bio that while you were working on your bachelor's degree, you also started your teacher training and you got your bachelor's degree in Spanish. So I'm curious about two things. The first thing is why Spanish? What inspired you to get your bachelor's degree in Spanish? And the second thing is what was it like multitasking between getting your degree and doing your teacher training? Yeah, so I do not speak Spanish fluently. Um, by the end of high school, I think I had taken six years of, six years of Spanish um, and I had studied abroad. So going into college, I had a lot of Spanish education underneath my belt. And originally when I went to college, I wanted to study to be an educator and quickly I realized, hmm, not so interested in that. Um, so I just decided to get my degree in Spanish. I graduated from St. Edwards University and that experience I hold so dear to my heart. You know, we, we dove into things like Spanish literature, Latin American art, Latin American literature, culture, translation, things like that. But my degree program also had a strong backbone of social justice and sort of unlearning this whitewashed education that I was um, presented with in public school. So it really, I'm embarrassed to say this, but it really wasn't until college that I learned, oh, Christopher Columbus didn't actually discover anything. Um, For me, those types of discoveries about whitewashing history, I feel like I didn't even really catch on to all of that until I graduated college and moved to Austin where I met like like-minded people who informed me about these types of things. So I wasn't even exposed to that concept until so much later. You never really get the full perspective of that until like much later after school. So that's interesting to me that you were able to encounter that in, in college. Yeah, I... I really loved that program so much. Um, I mean, St. Edwards University in and of itself is a liberal arts college, and so they have the freedom to create core programs that are different than um, public school education. So a lot of my degree also included like 
going to political rallies and volunteering and things like that. Um, wow. So that program really opened up a lot for me. And then to answer your second question, going through teacher training and being a brand new yoga teacher while I was in college was very interesting. I did a 200 hour teacher training in the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college. So it was an intensive teacher training, one month long. Um, and I started teaching yoga immediately afterwards. So really there hasn't been a point since my sophomore year of college that I haven't taught yoga and completing my degree while also teaching yoga. I, I always kind of knew I wouldn't really use my degree. And now I'm teasing that idea, but it was very interesting. Um, it felt like I was, you know, creating a career path for myself while I was also in college. Yeah, and also, funnily enough, I feel like still the things that you learned in terms of going to the political rallies, like learning about all of these bigger concepts of social justice, like that does apply to what you do here and now. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that I can really see how that formulated the way that you advocate for people. Um, so you did that for a while, and then eventually you found your way to Laughing Lotus uh, in New York City. So... Tell me about how you found that studio, what it meant to you, and then what that experience was like. So there are a few Laughing Lotus teachers in Austin, and I just started frequenting their classes and got so curious about the way they taught, um, two of which, or one of which is Jacqueline St. Pierre. Um, she was really the main teacher who, who opened me up to that style of practice. And when it came around to me, debating where I wanted to continue my studies with my 300 hour training, I just felt so called to that studio. So the studio is based out of New York and um, I spent two years completing my 300 hour program there where I would travel from Austin to New York for any time between a weekend and three weeks at a time. And I can't even imagine. That is so cool. And like, so, so you found the teachers that were Laughing Lotus teachers, but it, there is, is there a Laughing Lotus in Austin or you, they, they told you they were part of this greater studio and then you found out about the New York location. There's not a studio in Austin. It's okay. just in New York and in San Francisco. Um, but it's a, it's a specific style of teaching. So the sequencing is based around the chakras. And um, yeah, I just, you know, started talking to the teachers. Oh, I love how you teach. I love your sequencing. Um, I love how you weave in inspiration and philosophy into the asana. And they just kind of pointed me in that direction. Wow, that is so, so, so wild. So then you're traveling back and forth to New York as you're taking this 300 hour training. Um, and at this point, how many years did you teach for before you started your 300 hour? I was probably only teaching two years before I started my 300 hour. Um, okay. It took me two years to complete it. So I've been okay. teaching for about six and a half, almost seven years total now. Totally. Okay, cool. So as you're kind of like gaining this experience, getting farther in your practice at this point, you're a more seasoned practitioner, you know, you're learning about this eloquent method of sequencing through the chakras, what did you rediscover about yoga or how did your like original notion of your practice begin to change as you advanced? It really shifted a lot for me. My first 200 hour teacher training was very Hatha yoga based. Um, and my teacher was a Vini yogi. So she really passed on to me a lot of, um, 
tradition and more dogmatic approaches to the yoga practice. And at Laughing Lotus, I was introduced more to autonomy and freedom in my own teaching methodology. So I studied a myriad of things from sequencing to Ayurveda to assisting um, to yin to anatomy to prenatal. So I kind of got to dip my toes into a bunch of different puddles and in doing that and in taking two full years to complete that training, I was able to find more of myself within my offerings. And how did your personal practice also start to shift? Like when you got on your mat, what felt different for you? I'd say I did feel a big sense of freedom. Um, and then also as I started to deepen and really when I took my yin training, I really started to see the value in slowing down as much as I valued at that point, the big movements and the fancy asanas. So there was a shift that started there in New York for me of moving more towards yin and restorative and subtle body nervous system down regulation practices. Yeah, I, I find when I talk to a lot of people that come from similar backgrounds as we do, um, Brett and I practice at, a, at the same studio and Brett also teaches at Wonderlust Yoga, which I've spent a lot of time there as well. And you'll find a lot of power yogis in this community and I'm definitely a power yogi as well. And I find that a lot of us kind of like work backwards in this sense where we equate yoga with athleticism or we're always working towards like the inversions, the big movements, like the calorie burn, like all of the um, physically transformative aspects of yoga we tend to hyper-focus on. And then we miss out on the intention of yoga, which is asanas meant to prepare you for meditation. And the more introspective practices like yin that allow you to slow down, help you to start to discover that within yourself. So it's almost like we move from this physical layer into the more subtle body. And that was a big discovery for me. So what was that like for you? Well, you know, It's by no coincidence that most of us who live in the United States first fall in love with asana because that's what's sold to us. Um, And I also don't think that's a bad thing. So even if you were to look at the yoga sutras and you see the eight-limbed path of yoga, asana is listed before pranayama, pratyahara, dhyana, dhyana, samadhi. It's listed before the more subtle practices. So it is in a sense, you know, often it's called the gateway drug, right? It, uh, yeah. it opens you up to it. And I think everyone has their own journey with it. I, I personally don't think anything is wrong inherently with power yoga. I think it is a doorway into the yoga practice. It's not the only doorway, but it is a doorway and it works. And, um, you know, there's also something to be said about discharging energy through Mm. quick movements and sweating. So I love the yoga practice as a whole. And if you come to it from power yoga, or if you come to it from meditation, I think it's just most important that you come to it and you stay curious and open to exploring deeper and maybe sitting with your own discomfort and meditation comes 10 years down the line, or maybe Mm. it comes by chance. You know, one day you're in a power yoga class and the teacher asks you to 
take meditation instead of Shavasana. So we all yeah. have our own journey to it. Yeah, totally. I, I definitely greatly experienced that. And Camilla and I also discussed a lot. I don't think we should ever shame people for how they come to yoga, right? Um, and I also think that while it's important to recognize the preconceived notions that your society has created in you in terms of how you should make your body fit or what you should be doing to take care of your body, um, it's important to recognize that, but it also doesn't mean that you need to feel bad for wanting to move, wanting to sweat, or coming to yoga first, enjoying that aspect of it, right? Um, and it's, when I took your class one of the first times, I remember I was really early on in my practice in terms of like, I just want to get upside down all the time. I want to move one breath, one movement the whole time. And I remember you saying something along the lines of, you know, this isn't a race, you know, this is time for you to be with your breath and with your body. So allow yourself that time. And it was the first time that I think anyone had said that in a wanderlust class that I had taken. And I just kind of paused there and I was like, huh, what will I discover when I slow down? You helped give me that discovery. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad that I'm glad that clicked for you. Yeah, it took some time for me to really understand what that meant. And I feel like I'm still playing with, you know, feeling like I need to dispel a lot of energy, but also trying to move mindfully. That's something I think about in my practice every day. But yeah, yeah so in your time at, at Laughing Lotus, you eventually come across um, prenatal yoga and that starts to inspire the next leg of your journey. So tell me what inspired you so much about that and how the beginnings of that discovery was. You know, I really can't pinpoint one moment. I um, so my 300 to teacher training was a module based program and I signed up for prenatal. It was the last module before I graduated. And I was like, great, this works for my schedule. I don't really know anything about pregnancy aside from, you know, the basics. I don't have any kids. I don't necessarily want kids. Um, but okay, I'll just do it. And it wasn't one moment in that training. It was just I think seeing how, how important um, supporting the pregnant journey is, that really stood out to me. So um, one of my teachers in that training was a doula, and that was probably one of the first times I heard that word. Mm. And a couple of weeks after the training, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to sign up for a doula training and see what comes of it, because this interest in me had sparked and um, it was in my doula training that I really was really saw um, how powerful the work can be. So as a doula, I'm an advocate and a support person for people as they move through pregnancy, labor, birth, and a little bit of postpartum. Um, and yeah, it's, it's work that I'm really passionate about and it's work that I really love. That's so incredible. I, just like you, I also had never heard of doulas until I stepped into the yoga space. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's just because, you know, I was in high school and college before I started yoga and I never encountered pregnant people. But I 
maybe it's a concept that people are more familiar with in the health and wellness space. And that's why we ran across it then, but I'd never known until, until I came to yoga. Um, but can you tell me how yoga looks different when you're pregnant or, um, how you should be treating your body and what kind of precautions and things that you might do in your practice during that time? So every pregnancy is so different and so nuanced and there are, certain concrete rules um, that are offered to pregnant people in the asana practice, but really, and this is the approach I take when I teach prenatal yoga, is pregnant people are not made of glass. So um, I think sometimes as yoga teachers, if we're not trained in prenatal yoga, we can get a little scared or jarred when a pregnant person comes into our class. I have to be honest, I'm a new teacher, and that's definitely how I feel. I haven't been trained in prenatal <laughs> yoga yet. So yeah. it's comforting to hear you say that. <laughs> yes, um, totally normal, totally natural, especially if you have no personal relation to pregnancy. And then as a pregnant practitioner, pregnancy is a time in your life where you are going through so much rapid change in the course of 10, 10 and a half months. And in those 10 months, it seems like everyone and their mother is offering you unsolicited advice. And so as a prenatal yoga teacher and as a doula, if someone's not asking me for advice or if someone's not coming to me for my insight and my expertise, then I'm just going to hold space for them to have their own experience and pull from their inner wisdom. And uh, yeah, just tap into that reservoir of innate knowledge that we all hold within us that I think becomes heightened and unlocked during pregnancy. Yeah, we do. I feel like pregnant women, people throw things at them a million miles an hour and you don't need to come into yoga and have someone come up to you and be like, okay, well, you have to do this this way. That concept of just trusting women with, you know, what's going on with your body, which is something we tell people all the time, follow the wisdom of your body. Mm -hmm. um, to be able to tell a pregnant person the same thing. I feel like that's, that's power that you're handing back to the student. Yeah. And of course, we also want to keep their bodies safe. So I will, if I'm teaching a class that has a lot of deep twists, maybe go up to them and say, it might feel really crunchy and cramped for you to go into that deep twist. Why don't you try this today? Mm -hmm. Giving them options. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Totally. Yeah. So, and, and then kind of like stepping into the next space. I know we brushed over, you know, discovering what doulas are, but some people out there might not know what doulas are. So do you want to define what is a doula for everyone? Yes. Um, and I find that even within the wellness and yoga space, I get asked a lot, what, what is a doula? What do you do? Um, do you really? Yes. Yes. A lot. See, I thought this was common knowledge that I was just missing, but maybe it is more of an abstract concept. <laughs> It's definitely a profession that is gaining more recognition, but it's still, you know, widely unrecognized. So a doula is really a broad term for anyone who supports any reproductive health journey. So I am a birth doula. There are also death doulas, postpartum doulas, abortion doulas, fertility doulas, um, period doulas, doulas cover the wide spectrum of reproductive health. As a birth doula, I support birthing people and their partners as they move through the journey of pregnancy. So sometimes people bring me on 
very early in their pregnancy. Sometimes I'm hired very late in their pregnancy. Um, prenatally, I offer really just education and support and help prepare them for all of the choices that they will be offered within the landscape of birth. And then I am present during their birth and support them during that. And that's honestly where I call on a lot of these tools I've garnered, I've garnered through the yoga practice um, mm -hmm. is when I'm supporting people in person during their birth. So what can you tell me about like the power of the connection between you and the woman when you get to the birthing room and it's you and that woman? What, what does that connection feel like and what has that done for you? So interesting because doulas are like these fleeting characters within a, just a small um, journey of your life. And I really do try to build rapport with my clients before we get into that birth room so that they feel comfortable with me and I feel comfortable doing my work. Um, and there is something so remarkable about holding space for someone so that they do feel empowered, autonomous, and most importantly, safe to step into or step through that threshold of, um, of birth. And so really my work is holding space, which is kind of a buzz word nowadays. Um, I just try my best to listen to them in the moment, drop my implicit bias and show up for them in the way that they need me to, which might be very different than a client I had last month or a client I'll have in the future. So um, mm. the work really is, it requires me to be so present and mm. attuned to the nature of the person that's right in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even, I can't even imagine. It's such an intimidating thing and such a like, that's such a scary thing that people tell you about your whole lives. You know, one day you're going to have to squeeze a watermelon out of a really tiny little thing and you got to be ready for that. And yeah, that's incredible that you guide women through that experience. It can be scary, but I also think it's important to share the stories that aren't scary, that are joyful and exciting and beautiful. Um, and something I tell my clients a lot of the time and anyone who's considering getting pregnant is, you know, Notice the next time you're out in public or driving in your car, every single person that you see has been through that process at least once in their life. So it is sometimes daunting and scary, but it's also the most natural thing that we have, the most natural yeah. process, you know? Literally required for our existence on this planet. Mm -hmm. A prerequisite. Yeah. Um, so you started to speak on this earlier, but can you expand on using the tools of yoga and like what yoga looks like in the delivery room? Yeah. So something that I really try to hone in for all of my clients is the fact that if you are highly stressed through your labor, your labor will likely stall and not progress. And that's because um, the hormone that's needed to stimulate contractions and progress labor cannot flourish in a, in a scenario or in um, an environment that has high cortisol, high stress. So the way- Bad news for me, bad news <laughs> for everyone else with anxiety, you guys. <laughs> well, and that's when we can call on the tools that we already have of our breath and of movement and of meditation and mantra so that we can um, 
sort of to borrow a phrase from T.S. Eliot, so that we can be the still point amidst the turning of the world, so that we can be in the heat of labor and all of the emotions that come up with it and still feel safe within our own bodies. So mm -hmm. that's one way that, that's a very broad um, explanation of how yoga can, can help and support people as they move through labor. Um, this is such a dense topic and there's so many different branches I totally. can crawl out onto. But, but I mean, um, are you like standing over women, like helping them count their breath? Like are, or is it more just like you tell them or do, and also do you work on these things beforehand or is it sometimes you're just pulling things out like in the moment? It's both. So sometimes a lot of my clients honestly have been yoga teachers. So they already have these tools and my job mm -hmm. is just to remind them. Sometimes I do need to have a really big presence and be with them and be the voice that's in their head. And sometimes I need to step back and allow them to get in their own rhythm with their bodies. And sometimes my job is to tell, you know, the doctor to tell the doctor <laughs> to get out of here so that my client can um, hear themselves think. Yeah. And are you, is it usually in a hospital or do your, or it's all over the place? Some people do home births, some people do hospitals. Most of my clients give birth in the hospital. Um, and I would say second to that is birthing centers, which is sort of a step between home birth and hospitals. Yeah. Yeah. I've always thought the concept of home birth is amazing. And it, for someone with anxiety like me, that sounds so comforting, mm -hmm. but it also seems like you know, you need the right people on hand and, you know, it's the most common way that people do that is in the hospital. But making that feel like home, I feel like would be difficult. When you look at the science, really, um, the disparity rates and, yeah, the disparity rates show that home birth and hospitals really are on the same level. Um, to have a home birth, to have a supported home birth, you do have to have a low risk pregnancy. So if you do have a high risk pregnancy, usually your only option is to be in the hospital. Mm. Um, but home births really can be safe if you have a good midwife with you and if you have a backup plan if you need to transfer it to the hospital. And what, can you tell me more about a birthing center while yeah. we're on it? So a birthing center, is basically a hospital for midwives. Um, usually birthing centers are pretty close to hospitals and they kind of look like homes, honestly. You, uh, you're in a room, there's usually a tub, there's a bed. It feels very homey and comforting and it's a place for you to give birth. You don't stay overnight, so you do have that luxury of going home um, shortly after the birth. There is not medical intervention, so you still are able to birth unmedicated, and um, you're supported by midwives instead of obstetricians. Wow. Okay, cool. That's good to know. I've never heard of that before. These are all things I feel like I was just like, I'll figure it out one day. <laughs> and that's what's so great about doulas is that we have not all the answers, but a lot of answers, and so we yeah. can help. Um, and you've seen it. You've seen people go through it too. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's so comforting for someone who's experiencing these things for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, but something else I also wanted to touch on in your career. I noticed on, on your website that you, uh, you help mentor teachers or maybe you take one or two clients on at a time. 
Um, and I think that that's so incredible. And something that I wanted to ask you is if you could mentor yourself in the beginning of your yoga career, what would you tell yourself? Mm, that's a really good question. If I could mentor myself as a newer teacher, I would tell myself to stop trying so hard to be like the teachers I look up to. But in the same breath, that led me to finding who I was. By realizing who I wasn't, I realized who I was as a teacher. Um, and I would tell myself to be unafraid to take risks. I am someone who struggles with imposter syndrome quite a bit. And uh, I, would, I would encourage younger Brett to, um, to go for things and to actualize these ideas that I have and um, to follow my own path of creativity. Yeah, a big step for me, <laughs> similar to that, was starting this podcast where mm -hmm. I really wanted to start to expand offerings outside of just the classroom. And this was very intimidating for me to do. And still, every time the shock of hearing myself recorded, it's, it's so difficult. But sometimes you just got to get out of your comfort zone um, and go there. And also, um, I, I also have found in my teaching career that I want to emulate the teachers that inspire me, which, you know, is a blessing and a curse, as you said. But when you started to find your authentic self as a teacher, who is bred as a teacher? Mm. As a teacher, I really try to be nurturing and encouraging while simultaneously asking my students to stand amidst the fire. Um, I kind of try to emulate both the Kali archetype and the Saraswati archetype. So that of the creative, studious, nurturing teacher and that of the uh, fierce, protective mother teacher. So that's really who I, who I try to be. <laughs> I have heard, kid you not, when people talk about your class, they say the word nurturing. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I've literally heard people use that adjective to describe your class. Um, That's sweet. I'm someone who I don't learn well if um, someone's being harsh with me. I learn best when, you know, I feel supported. So yeah, I, I try to be that for my students in the classroom and in the teacher training space. Yeah. And when you're working teacher to teacher and you're speaking to someone as a mentee, what do you hope to instill in the teachers that you work with? The teachers I've mentored, they come to me with different goals. What I hope to offer everyone who I mentor or I teach in some capacity is what I just touched on a moment ago, that ability to feel like you are enough as a teacher and you don't have to get all of these different certificates to offer something that's meaningful and can create change, um, whether that's to one person or to a thousand people. I, I really hope that the people who study under me and mentor with me feel like they are enough, like they, they already meet the requirement to teach. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I just uh, read about actually in this book called The, the Good Girl Myth by Maho Mofino. Mm -hmm. There's, they talk about these um, five, I forget if it's five or six, but five myths that women tend to grow up with and tell themselves. 
One of them is the myth of perfection. And what that can look like is um, I need to be the best at everything. I need to be the most educated, the most prepared. And what that can look like in your life is you never feel like you have enough training to do the work that you want to do. You feel like you need to get that next degree, the next training, the next thing on paper that says this person has checked these boxes to do this thing and they're within all these parameters. So they're perfect and they're ready to do this. So I think it's so interesting that you bring that up also is, you know, trust your instinct. And if you think that you have something to offer, or if there is something that you're inspired to offer, there's probably someone who wants to listen to you. Yeah. I definitely fall under um, the group that you just described. I, I, I do love education, so I do love studying, but I also have felt like, oh, I can't do that until I have this training. Or I, have, I can't do that until I've studied with this teacher. Yeah. Um, and there is so much value in continuing education, and I do believe that that is a massively important piece of mm -hmm having the responsibility as a teacher, we have the responsibility to also educate ourselves and stay up to date with current information. And at the same time, if your heart is in it, you don't need external validation. So I hold both of those things to be true at the same time. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's all about finding the balance between those things. I definitely believe knowledge is power, especially in the age of information. You guys, check your news sources, like look at where you're getting your information from and try to gather as much information as you can, get as educated as you can. Fully, fully believe in that. And also at the same time, we shouldn't constantly feel like there's red tape over every single thing that we wanna do. And like, we're just shifting through red tape our whole lives. We only have one life to live. And so I hope that whatever offerings anybody has, you know, that you're giving them when you feel that you're ready and that you don't feel like you constantly need someone else to tell you that you're ready to be able to do it. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 Big, big thing for me, by the way, that book is awesome. The good girl myth by Maho Molfino. Um, highly recommend. Um, but also looking forward to all the things, all the things that you've done already being a doula mentoring teachers, what do you have in mind for your future and what are you hoping to offer or what are you hoping to accomplish? Well, in the near future, an online prenatal yoga teacher training in January that I'm really excited about. Um, I've been working really hard. Yeah, I hope that this training really is something that I haven't seen offered before. It, it pulls on, you know, evidence-based information that I use in my in my doula practice it's also very inclusive to all genders all people um i'm really excited to offer that in the future i i hold the deep honor of being a teacher of teachers and um co-leading teacher trainings so i'm really excited to continue down that route i'm hoping to create more um continuing education programs for yoga teachers, deeper studies, things like that. And uh, also I'm just allowing myself to stay open to, to what's ahead. Cause I don't know everything that's ahead. Sweet, well, I'm so excited. I would love to do continuing education with you. And also I don't know anything about prenatal yoga. So I'm intrigued. I hope all you guys are intrigued. Um, but before we close out, I'm trying something new and I have a little speed round of a couple of questions. If you're down, are you down for yes. that? I listen okay. to a lot of podcasts that do this and I'm always like, 
that looks so fun. <laughs> Good. Well, this is your moment to shine. Um, I'm nervous too, because I've never tried um, facilitating this. What's one word that you would use to describe your practice? Ever-changing. What's one word you would use to describe your class? Fun. What's on top of your nightstand? Dust and a lot of books. <laughs> and what's your favorite book? That is really hard. Um, a couple of books that I've read this year that I really love is Know My Name by Chanel Miller. I loved that. Um, the Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. Loved that. Untamed by Glennon Doyle. The list can go on and on and on. She's a library. All right. What's your favorite morning drink or snack? Coffee. <laughs> if I'm making it at home, I can't make iced coffee. So I just do, I use flat track beans from Austin. They're my favorite coffee beans with oat milk. And if I'm going to a coffee shop, I love a oat milk iced latte. Mm. What's your favorite yoga pose? What is my favorite yoga pose? Recently, I've really just been loving triangle pose. Mm. What's your least favorite yoga pose? Without a doubt, revolved half moon. Whose yoga class do you think I should go to next and why? Whose yoga class do I think you should go to next and why? Okay, I'll, well, see, the thing is, I know a lot of yoga teachers who you've already taken, so I don't want to list them, although some of them are my favorites. True. You know what, you know who I'm going to say is, um, I'm currently co-leading a teacher training at Wanderlust, and you should take our graduation class, because you know a couple people in the training, and it's, um, I'm so proud of this group, and I think that you would, uh, I think you'd enjoy yourself in the graduation Yes! Class. Cough, cough, Jade, you better kick my butt, I'm so excited. <laughs> Okay, and then when is the next class that you are offering? Um, the next class I'm offering, I teach a live stream vinyasa class every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. All right, Saturday morning at 9 a.m. I actually teach a class at the same time. <laughs> but, <laughs> all right, y'all. Um, and then where can the audience find you for more information? You know, all the normal places. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Brett Haganis. You can find me on my website, um, brettthaganis.com. I have a myriad of offerings that you can access through both of those places. Uh, you can become a member and practice with me unlimited classes uh, for $12 a month through my website. Awesome. Sounds so great. Well, thank you so much, Brett. I'm so grateful to have had you on this podcast. Thank you. That was so fun. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, you guys, for listening. And we'll see you next time on Speak the Movement. Om Shanti. Peace.